Welcome to Sharing Air, where we take a transdisciplinary look at how we connect, even in isolation. In each episode, we explore our complex relationship with the essential yet precarious medium of air as we share stories that bring us together in these times of distance and transformation. This takes us to places wise, wary, and whimsical, as with our guests we consider questions like, what would 17th century philosophers and poets have thought of today's world of medical intervention? And, sometimes dismayingly still, 21st century medical fallibility. How can women have it all when they have to do it all in a time of lockdown and homeschooling? What's it like to be a respiratory technician in a COVID ward? And will Andy ever get his dishes done? I'm Lori Ann Farrell, Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University. And today my burning question, and I know I speak for us all when I voice it, is does this mask make my laptop look big? And I am Andy Vosco, the Sisyphus of Dishes, um, also the Associate Provost of Transdisciplinary Studies and Director of the program here at Claremont Graduate University. I was just kidding when I said Punxsutawney Phil last week. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to take on an, another pseudonym uh, related to my, my kitchen at some point. How are you doing, Laurieanne? I'm doing all right. Um, I got big news from that only as stems from five o'clock this morning. I am on the schedule to be vaccinated this month coming up. Hey, congratulations. That's yeah, really and exciting. I actually argued back backwards from it. I got the first I'm gonna go in on the first of March and they gave me my second appointment on the twenty eighth. So using that as information, I, I discerned that I'm going to be getting the Moderna vaccine. Oh, what were what were the other ways that you could have figured that out? Absolutely no way that I could figure out on the Walgreens (laughs) website. They won't tell you what they're going to give you and you try to find out and they won't tell you. So then I just thought, well, one of them is a two week and one of them is a month. And I only know that because Andy told me. When they did this originally, I think the the prices of the vaccines were such that one of them, I don't remember if Pfizer or Moderna was much cheaper, but it's like... So it was significantly cheaper. I don't know if they changed the prices, but the one that was ready first was Pfizer. Um, I don't know if that was a contract they signed first. So we purchased more Moderna vaccine in this country. And I I don't remember which is more expensive. I, I feel like I should know this. Um, and we're awaiting the Johnson & Johnson because it looks like we're about to be given the go-ahead as, as a single-dose vaccine um, to be used in the future, but they haven't done that yet. So there's a lot of... St- there's a lot of that initial big buy of Moderna that was used in the original government contract. But then we also had for healthcare workers, that was the first to come out was the Pfizer contract. And I think they're doing more Pfizer now than Moderna. I don't, I don't really know exactly. I where feel it's like going, you're telling I me I got the cheap one. I think you're, I feel like you're telling me I got the, like the cut rate, you know, and it is 1% less effective than Pfizer, right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and now I and now I know why. I'm a little bit I feel a little bit like those people in I was reading that there are people in Germany that are refusing to take the AstraZeneca vaccine when it's offered to them because they don't feel that it's good enough. So now well, we've there, already moved from being, you know, like we have to have the vaccine, where's the vaccine? Um, you know, what's happening here to I don't like that vaccine. I want the better vaccine. We're getting picky. Well, the the German vaccine story is a little bit more, it's it's a good illustration of the importance of transparency in the vaccine development process. So Oxford-AstraZeneca had some issues when they were originally in the race. And and essentially, this was all a big race. And we hadn't looked at this as as a, like the emergence of biotech companies who 
might be able to purchase their own islands and, and create them as nation states in the world coming out of this. Um, you know, with with Pfizer and Moderna, they used the RNA technology, which had never been used in a vaccine before. And they went like light speed. There was, especially on the Moderna side, there was collaboration with the National Institutes of Health to get that out there. Um, Pfizer is a, I don't know if they, they, uh, BioNTech, I think, is who they collaborated with to get their yeah. vaccine going. I mean, they, they both were huge machines. You better believe that every other drug company was doing something with this at the same time. So AstraZeneca, Oxford had a collaboration. Um, Johnson & Johnson is giant. I think Merck was probably in there. And the questions are related to where we're going to go in this whole process is going to be like, who wins the vaccine war? Then who's going to win the medication war, the, the drug treatment wars for this? So Merck is going to probably, they dropped out first or one of the early ones to drop out. So they refocused their, their trials on treatment of COVID rather than vaccine for COVID. AstraZeneca was in the top three for a very long time. And then when they went to present their data, it was really scrutinized. Like, what in the world are you presenting to us? This is not good data. Like, no, 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 sorry, we're going to go back and fix it. And they went back to fix it. And they had a lot of mistrust from the beginning. And then when they went through their study, they didn't actually have a have a, a subcategory of is the vaccine safe for people over 65? They, they didn't really have that in strong enough data. And so the German government's like, we're not supporting this for people who are over 65 because you're not giving us the data to say that it's safe for people over 65. Uh, and so AstraZeneca had their first faux pas. They didn't then additionally show safety in people over 65. And the other interesting part of this whole vaccine race is that it's it's very regional. It's, it's very um, area-based on the globe. So you've got China, which is the Sinovax vaccine. You had Russia that claimed its vaccine was ready before everybody else's. And in this country, was like an eyebrow raise of what I take that vaccine. There was the American version, which was uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and um, and Johnson & Johnson, even though Pfizer also is in, in Europe. And then AstraZeneca Oxford was the European space for the vaccine. So you're, the distribution of all the different vaccines is also going to be relative to the powerhouse biotech collaborations that are going on in these parts of the world. It's uh, like the new, it's like new, the new nationalism or something, or, you know, it, sort of or the new it's a game of risk. Absolutely. It, the it's a new game of risk. And we're all, we're all on Irkutsk. That's always the place that I ended up defending when I played with. <laughs> I'd be the, the last person, like, you know, I would refuse be four o'clock in the morning and I'd still have this one tiny island that was mine. Um, but can I ask you something? You've actually gone over this before, but I'm reminded that um, people do, we, we, you know, we do have a lot of information, if not enough sometimes. And I've actually been in conversations where people have said things like, well, I just want the one that's with the RNA. I don't want the one that's not, right? And I know that that's the difference between um, Moderna and Pfizer versus Johnson & Johnson. Can you just explain why somebody would actually think the one that I'm getting, even though it's the cheap one, is actually better than, say, the, the, the one that's being made by Johnson & Johnson, which is, I think, a different kind of pharmaceutical technology. Yeah. So the adenovirus vaccine is what AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are using. And uh, adenovirus is a naturally occurring virus that you find in nature that is made of DNA. It's not RNA based. And the reason why they are being used is because in laboratories, they've been used for a very, very long time in molecular biology. So laboratory science has been able to manipulate adenoviruses so that they could do things like gene delivery 
um, or or gene cloning or all the all these things that you use in molecular biology. So they kind of knew this technology very very well. It hadn't been used commonly as a vaccine, but they've also been talking about using it for a vaccine for a very long time. And I think they might have developed a vaccine or two that wasn't widely distributed with the adenovirus vaccine. Hmm. But it's a virus itself. I mean, it's it's not the virus for for COVID nineteen. It's just a gen- like they they engineer the 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 pieces of this virus to kind of work together and manufacture as a virus would by just creating the spike protein. So that's very similar to the mRNA vaccine, which just makes the vice the spike protein of the virus as well. So essentially, you're creating the same protein that your immune system can create antibodies against in in either case. The big difference is the delivery method. So mRNA is very unstable. It has to be um, in some kind of, we call them lipid substance. It's got to be protected so that mm-hmm. it, can, it can go through and it's got, it uses nanoparticles <laughs> to surround it wow. and, and to be delivered into the cell membrane and get into the cell. And once the, the mRNA is there, then you've got machinery that'll immediately start making the protein from it and then exporting it out of the cell. With the adenovirus, you kind of put the instructions like an Ikea box in with the, the vector and you use the viral machinery that's normal in a virus to make its way into the body. So you don't have to use a lipid nanoparticle kind of delivery system. Uh, one of the reasons why people haven't been as keen or more keen on one or the other is that the storage for an adenovirus is much less. It's, it's only like room temperature, maybe a, a typical four degrees Celsius or whatever the refrigeration temperature is. Whereas you have to be, I think, at, at a freezing or very freezing temperature for the RNA virus to make it more stable. Oh, The Johnson & Johnson, and I think AstraZeneca, had marketed themselves as single vaccine doses, whereas the mRNA vaccines were marketed as double dose. So you'd have two parts to it. So you know, if you have 70% efficacy with one dose versus 95% efficacy with two doses, they had different strategies, and I don't know the reason why. But a single dose, 70%, might have been the case for Moderna or Pfizer, but they didn't use that as the final outcome. They used the final outcome was two doses. So they say that it's more effective to do that regimen for the mRNA vaccines, but the the Johnson & Johnson and actually the, the AstraZeneca are pretty similar, are closer to somewhere between like 60 and 70% effective with their single dose. Now, the, the last interesting part was that when they had started with the, the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, they found that people were reporting a lot of side effects early on. And I don't know if those side effects were outside of the normal feelings of virus that you get with any vaccine, because you are essentially priming your immune system to feeling what it's like to have part of this for like a day or two with a much milder version. Um, but because of the numbers of people complaining about it publicly, there was a thought, well, if, you know, this is not as, if this is not as effective and there's going to be more side effects, I'm not as sure I want to do an adenovirus-based vaccine. I'd rather do the mRNA. But that isn't necessarily fair and is not necessarily true. So the, it's the same essentially thing. It's the delivery method that's really the difference. Um, and we don't know yet enough of which one is going to be like better for each type of person that's taking it. There were more, there was more done to determine like on the mRNA vaccines to which populations could take it, but the Johnson and Johnson might've done a better job 
of looking at people over 65, looking at people who might have been previously infected with COVID, like doing all these subpopulations of people. That was a very long-winded explanation, though. One of the things you point out that I find fascinating that has absolutely nothing to do in some ways with how one actually develops a vaccine is the kind of the presuppositions that you go in with that actually then determine how it is delivered, what people can expect from it. So if you go in with the, you know, the idea that that two shots are better than one has got nothing to do with anything except that, the you know, in some ways it was the premise that they started with and they didn't give it up. And I think that that reminds me of a lot of interesting problems that, that we try to solve, you know, sometimes just, you know, in our own research. Um, we sometimes forget to question our very, you know, our originating premises in a certain kind of way. Plus, I love the idea about the Ikea box. It terrifies me because I have never been able to successfully put together anything from Ikea in my entire life. So the idea that something inside my body would be sort of frantically, you know, reassembling, you know, itself and then find that it still had like three screws at the end and a piece of, you know, and a piece of, of, of shelf. I just don't want to see that happening in anybody's body. And now you know the difference, everybody, between someone who's trained to do early modern literature like I am and Andy, who actually understands these things. But, you know, I think it's, you know, it did basically change my whole day to get this to get this on my schedule and to realize that there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. So the emotional uplift is 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 non-quantifiable. You know, I'm thinking it's about time that we actually introduce our very patient guest because um, she's got a lot to tell us. I think we get back to the medium of air. Andy, would you like me to introduce our guest? Yes, please. Okay, I will because I, I you know, I want to do it for lots of reasons, but partly because I do love her title. Okay, so this is, uh, we welcome Professor Anne Harley from Scripps College, and she is Associate Professor of Music and the Advisor in the Environmental Analysis Non-Science Tracks. At some point in our discussion today, and I must ask you to explain what that means, although you don't have to do that at this exact moment. I want to say a few words about Anne before we start um, asking her questions, but she's a scholar, she's a singer, she's an opera singer, and she's a yogini, which will be interesting to discuss as well. Let me just say a few things about what she has been doing in an extremely interesting um, biography. She's interested in the creation of interdisciplinary and intercultural performance projects that engender new and diverse forms of community. Some of Anne's recent projects employ newly composed music and or collaborative theater as a form of community action. And Anne is frequently engaged in faculty-student research partnerships. Um, But building on her experience as a performer and a director of opera, in 2011, Anne founded and now directs the commissioning performance project, Voices of the Pearl. The project commissions, performs, records, and tours new contemporary classical music settings of text by and about, this is fascinating, female esoteric practitioners from all world traditions. These projects have been awarded uh, three times by the National Endowment for the Arts and recognized internationally. Working with scholars of female spiritual leaders over the past decade, Anne Harley has curated a series of new compositions that illuminate and reclaim women's writings that have been lost to the mainstream. This sounds fascinating in all different directions about music, about religion, about spiritual practice, and about women. Could you say a little bit more about the relationship between religion, music, breath, and esoteric practice, or is that loading up a question with too many? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much for um, this fantastic introduction. I will say it always takes me a long time to write 
my biography or like those little bios that you're giving out to, to people, because depending on the audience, it, it really does change how I define myself. And I've felt like I found a, a real kindred spirit in Andy because of his transdisciplinary focus. <laughs> so your question was, connect religion, breathing, singing, and what else? <laughs> esoteric religion, practice. breathing, music, and esoteric practice. But you can, you can pick two of the three or three of the four. <laughs> It's your work. Okay. You pick. All right. Well, I guess let let me just start with the reason that I initially thought this would be a great podcast uh, topic, um, which is the connection between breathing and singing, and then also between breathing and the body. Mm-hmm. And you know, every culture has music, and every culture has singing. As a person who teaches singing. And as a singer myself, my students and I really wanted to contribute something to uh, the current moment and contribute something helpful. And so um, I read first in, uh, I think it was the BBC website, that the English National Opera was launching this program called Eno Breathe to help people recovering COVID patients who were suffering long-term effects. And they had opera singers basically teaching these recovering patients breathing and singing techniques as a way to kind of remediate some of the the problems they were experiencing long-term from having gone through COVID. And so that got me very excited. And, um, and I just, I guess I want to use this podcast <laughs> as a platform to ask anyone listening to please contact me because I have access to about 20 very eager, very skilled breathers who are also singers. <laughs> and they would love to help out with patients in the recovery process. And I understood also from the English National Opera website, this is like, a, it's, it's non-clinical um, intervention. So it's, it's not necessarily uh, something that a doctor has to prescribe but it probably in England works really well with that single payer healthcare um, and also the heavily uh, sponsored government sponsored uh, arts programs that they have to make that possible for lots and lots of patients through, through hospitals, through doctors. But I think probably the U S model is going to require a little more sort of open-mindedness. I was just going to ask what makes a person a skilled breather. <laughs> I, w- I wanted to give a little context to, to Anne's uh, relationship with the, the COVID breathing besides the article in that I know it's divulging personal information, but Anne was one of my close friends when I was ill who didn't just deliver chicken soup to me, uh, but she's somebody who helped on the days that I was having some breathing trouble to, to kind of explain to me as a singer of understanding that it wasn't a matter of me not being able to get a full breath in. It's being, it's better to think of it as how can I use my lungs better? And that was a Mm. real paradigm shift for me in understanding what was going on. It took away some anxiety. It made me understand that I was capable of, I I might not have had the best lungs at that point, but um, to still feel like I was 
fully getting a breath in changed everything because there's this positive feedback loop that will happen when you don't feel like you're getting enough air that your breathing becomes more shallow so you're not getting enough air and it, it kind of goes into that spiral so um and was like game changing for me and and just kind of coping with it and i think she had a lot of uh i mean not not just impact but she she kind of had this music wisdom that goes along with breathing that I really appreciated. So I wanted to interject that before we like jumped into why NHS in England was doing this or um, the, the 20 skilled what breathers. What is a skilled breather? <laughs> I want to know what a skilled breather is. I'm, although I'm awfully glad you, 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 you shared that Andy and, and, and as Andy's other friend, I mean, I'm sure he has more than two, but as one of Andy's <laughs> friends, I want to thank you for helping him so much so that he can be back on this podcast and able to take in enough breath to talk with us. But, and we can go anywhere we want with this, but before the end of this podcast, I'm going to find out what makes a person a skilled breather. Cause it's something that I think I've always thought of it as an involuntary action. So Andy knows this and, and most people don't know this, that I'm, I was, when I entered undergraduate, I was pre-med and my path to being a, a music specialist has been very, very circuitous and not at all in a straight line. Um, and that might account for all these different trajectories outside of music that I've, that I've um, explored in terms of skilled breather. I think, you are, along with most people, a person who doesn't pay much attention to, to how you breathe, and you don't normally have to. It normally works really well for everybody, and it's only when it doesn't work, of course, that um, our attention is brought very <laughs> swiftly to the fact that it doesn't work. But there are people, uh, and of course, you, you referred to the yogic practice, there are many traditions that have used breathing to change the body, change the mind, change what is what is going on inside by kind of pulling on the levers that we can pull that kind of operate voluntarily, but also involuntarily. So breathing systems are, you know, one of the only things that, that exist on the cusp between voluntary and involuntary systems in, in our bodies. Oh. And, you know, we might have been really good at them back in evolutionary time, you know, when we were closer to fish um, or, what, you know, closer to, to water, water dwelling uh, beings. But um, at this point in a socialized person, very few people really think about their breathing. Sometimes I, I think the most popular way that this comes up is snoring. <laughs> then you're, yeah, then you're actually aware of other people. That's breathing. right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody makes you very aware that you're snoring. But, you know, there there are these practices, yogic practices, Taoist practices. I think, you know, almost every esoteric tradition that I've bumped into during my uh, research into those has at some point I've, I've seen a, a body of practices that that use breath in order to do something to the body and the mind. And that might not be what every COVID patient wants. Um, they may just need to become more aware of their breathing system so that, you know, the experience that Andy had of maximizing awareness of the different structures in your body that may not be used for breathing could be used and that you can get a feeling of a relationship 
to your breath and a, and a sort of a give and take, a control, not a control because we can never fully control the breath, but we can establish a kind of friendship rather than yeah. kind of being terrorized by breathlessness, which I understand is one of the one of the experiences of uh, COVID patients. And, and in the past, uh, I've had asthmatic patients who have been helped a great deal by uh, breathing techniques that they learned in my singing lessons with them. So I think singers have something important to offer. I think also the couching of these breathing techniques within music is very alluring. People who wouldn't normally go to a breathing class might be induced to go to a singing class. <laughs> it yeah. might, because most people associate music and singing with some form of enjoyment, although there is a lot of shyness in our culture as well around singing. But yeah, I think I think all of my students and myself would like to would like to help out. And I'm really delighted, Andy, that it, it was helpful for you, of course one never knows because I'm not a doctor, right? So I, I would hesitate to say, you know, this is definitely going to help. But from the preliminary results that they've had in England, it seems like the program is growing and, and has given people a level of confidence with their breathing system that they did not have before they entered the program. And when I was talking to you, Anne, one of the things that it reminded me of was you're you're very in tune with the anatomy of breathing, in addition to the the idea that there's both a voluntary and an involuntary component. And a long time ago, I remember I used to teach a little bit on sleep apnea, so I had to know some of the systems for voluntary and involuntary breathing. And what you explained, it it, it was like a tidal wave of like oh duh moments for me. That like <laughs> they're muscles that you flex. These are things that you develop. There are memories that you create, like that are at a muscle memory level that make it so that you improve your technique, just like you improve your technique at riding a bike or at anything that you're doing that involves motor coordination. So it was so counterintuitive for what we normally uh, take on with with breathing because we take it for granted, but. Your diaphragm, which is essentially the thing that creates all of the vacuum that allows the oxygen into your airways, is under voluntary control. That's the thing that you can pull and tug and, and everything with your, with your mind, with, with your willpower. But we don't know, whereas a singer knows, how to actually manipulate that to do bigger and better things. And, and it, it's it's crazy to me that we think of muscles in some ways like, uh, you know, like what you get in, in, in more of a, a visual representation of what muscles are, rather than thinking about muscles that work inside the body and that they, they undergo the same principles. You mentioned actually voluntary control of the, the diaphragm. And actually, um, my understanding is that we actually don't have voluntary control of that particular piece of the anatomy, but we have control of about of, of, of muscles around it and in the rib cage. Mm, okay. If you have a, a somatic understanding, like a good relationship with your body of all the different ways that you can you can breathe, you can expand your lungs, then you can you in some cases you can choose where it is that you're going to expand. If, for example, I, I guess I'll, I'll just tell this sort of, um, in a nutshell, the condensed idea of how breathing gets to be so 
uh, shallow and rigid in most people in our society. So imagine all of us as babies, <laughs> screaming, 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 right? And making a lot of noise. I think we all probably made a tremendous amount of noise when we were, you know, just in our first year. And imagine our poor parents, our poor family members who are saying, please do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> And they're doing everything they can to get us to make less sound. By and large, by the time I get these undergraduate students coming into my uh, studio, um, that process of so socialization and most of the time reduction in volume and um, reduction in a connection to the voice has proceeded through all kinds of education, and it also, especially because of the gendered nature of um, how we see voice, has happened particularly to the women. And so just getting those people to make a loud sound takes usually a month <laughs> because of all of their um, kind of psychological and then also habitual uh, restriction of the breathing mechanism. And if you've been given approval and love and encouragement for making teeny tiny sounds and sounds, you know, I'm not saying all socialization is bad, of course, what we're doing right here, speech, right? At a very specific level that doesn't max out the microphone. Um, and I'm, you know, not going to make a really loud sound as I, as I threatened the, um, the tech, uh, director of the podcast um, <laughs> before we get on. Um, you know, if, if you, you have to keep, keep your voice in a narrow, acceptable range. And so a lot of people's contact with the breathing system for making those large sounds atrophies and only really emerges when there's a, a huge emergency, like, you know, they have to stop a, a car from running over their dog or uh, an earthquake and, you know, some part of the building is falling and they're telling someone to move out of the way or, you know. Um, so finding your way back into those gestures that engage all of your breathing muscles in order to be able to bring um, a fully expressive and fully resonant sound to the audience, right, um, is and and which eventually, hopefully, will result, according to Western theater, in a cathartic experience for the audience because everybody remembers making those sounds somewhere in their body, but they've forgotten how to make them. So the the singer's job is to take those audience members and, you know, carefully lead them through a very safe uh, <laughs> remembrance of making loud, expressive sounds of, of passion, of, um, you know, not, it's not always incredibly loud and passionate, but a lot of the time what we most prize in opera, for example, is um, really high notes and um, really passionate singing. And those are precisely the things that, that we've um, excised through socialization from our conversation. That is so, so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Because you're reminding me, actually, of I went to see the singer K.D. Lang at the Hammersmith in London, which is a fairly small venue. Um, and she was not as well known as she is now. 
And there were these moments in her when she was singing where she would have to pull the microphone away from her face and pull it away from her to the side because her voice was so big. Um, and I just noticed that she she had she was very aware of when her when she would actually not need to be mic'd. And the room was just about too small for her to ever need to be mic'd. Um, and you just, you just brought that back to me, this idea of being able to let loose like that. Um, and that we are kind of, it's, a, it's kind of a new vision of what happens to childhood to kind of squish us. Yeah. I mean, um, the, that technique riding the mic is, um, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> that's right. That's what that's right. You know, that's what I was, you know, but I had you and Katie Lang, that's, you know, that's, there we go together forever. Well, um, she's got, she's. You know, she's, I, you know, she's a different kind of, you know, she's not an opera singer, but she's definitely got some pipes. Um, I, I have the greatest respect for her. <clears throat> and um, I, 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 you know, as a Canadian, I'm, I'm, I'm oh. very proud. Um, yes, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> but, that, but the other thing that actually struck me in what you were saying was that opera, opera allows for the expression of emotion that needs that kind of breath and, and volume and, um, and kind of, um, you know, those that needs that kind of openness and that we may, I was thinking, I wondered, you know, we go to opera to actually feel that because it's not just hearing it when you're, when you go to the opera or when you listen to opera, it's, it resonates within your own body, almost like a, you know, like, um, like a thrum. And, um, I really, thanks. That's, that's kind of an amazing insight. Um, if you're, if you're lucky, it, it resonates in your body as a thrum, but, um, you know, here's the secret to enjoying opera. Um, as far as I can tell, because, um, you know, a lot of people have an aversion to certain operas, certainly. Um, and, um, the secret is actually trying to sing some of it yourself. Hmm. Um, just as the secret to enjoying tennis is to play tennis yourself a little bit, or the secret to enjoying gymnastics uh, is to try to do some of those things yourself, mm -hmm. even if you're very bad at it. Um, because as soon as you see someone doing something that you have done yourself, your um, the brain, I, I think, Andy, you can talk about this better than I can, but the, the brain lights up in a much, uh, a, a much bigger way for things that you yourself have experienced, but maybe in a, a kind of smaller capacity. I, I don't know. In, yes, <laughs> yes, there's going to be a top-down <laughs> part of that for sure. I don't know the exact, there's like different ideas of, of what systems might be at work there. And for a long time, people talked about like mirror neurons in, in that kind of space. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it, what, what you're talking about, Anne, makes me think of the performance arts and in singing as very social acts and the irony yeah. of having to deal with um, something like breathing in a very isolated way. Um, and mm -hmm. so part of our practice breathing, uh, not necessarily in singing, uh, is is usually because we're talking all the time or we're in you know like we're having to play with our breath in ways that are um based on our, our communication but they're not in this more prosodic form of, of an, an artistic form of expression and song so um what would you say to somebody who may or may not live by themselves 
who is needing to practice breathing, but isn't getting the social reward of anything. Because, I mean, I was trying to belt Bonnie Tyler this morning, for instance, when I was doing the dishes. But oh, that, that <laughs> has limited capacity. That. My neighbor did not love that. Um, but like that has limited appeal um, for people, unless you're a shower singer. And, you know, like some of us are a car singer, like some people do that kind of thing. But what about those of us, you know, that don't you know, get the same kick out of shower singing and, and actually do better because of the performative social component to it? What are some things that are out there now? What are some ideas that you might have um, to connect through song? That is a really good question, Andy. And I have to say, it is one that faculty in music departments the world over are uh, struggling with because, um, for example, at the Claremont Consortium, we have uh, the joint music choirs uh, conducted by uh, Charles Kamm. Uh, and, you know, he, I, I'm so happy I don't have his job right now. Okay. Yeah. Because it's very difficult right now with the technology we have to establish um, a, 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 a sensory connection with someone else making sound at the same time that you're making sound through a Zoom link, through through any kind of link, honestly. Um, I think uh, I've, I've heard of some experiments um, that have resulted in limited success, you know, but require incredibly expensive infrastructure in terms of the internet. Um, I know, for example, that the Manhattan School of Music um, had a really amazing internet uh, speed and throughput um, that allowed them to actually play with students in, you know, places like North Dakota. Um, I don't know if they're using it now. I, I happen to have just been talking about this a couple of years ago um, because I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do that <laughs> <laughs> in Claremont? Um, it actually, you know, as a, a kind of sidebar, it turns out that Manhattan School of Music teachers who are some of the best, you know, in, in the nation, if not in the world, giving private lessons to students in a high school in North Dakota sounds like a net win, but is actually taking jobs away from people in North Dakota. Um, so in the end, I think they, they um, decided to kind of scale back on that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, um, but they had the technology, I guess, is, is, is what I'm trying to get at. And um, we don't have that right now. So, uh, you know, I, I teach voice lessons and I know lots of people who do that, and it's actually, um, you wouldn't perhaps think it's that successful, but it's actually one of the most resilient forms of music lessons because um, no matter where the student is, their voice is also there. So that is not the case with a grand piano, for example. Um, many of our students uh, used the pianos at, uh, in, on campus to practice and don't have that uh, wherever they are. And so I, that's also something that's very difficult. Um, but at least for, for, for voice students, um, I think we kind of moved forward without dropping a beat. Now, does the voice lesson 
sound and look like it did before? Certainly not. Um, there are certain things that are much worse. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't maybe expect me to say this, but there are certain things that are much better. Um, and, you know, that I guess looking forward, the trick going forward is can we retain some of those things we've discovered because we were forced into this Zoomscape? Um, can we retain those things that were pedagogically really, really successful and helpful, even when we go back to being in person? I think that's a question that we are all kind of taking on these days. I'm, I'm struck too, Anne, with the idea that, you know, in the very beginning, one of the most shocking parts of the news about COVID was that it was that it could spread more rapidly uh, um, between singers. And so, yeah. and then now what you're, what you're doing, I, I love this kind of dependent idea of this, which is that it is also singing technique that can help actually undo this kind of damage. Um, mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be an elegant, you know, sort of an elegant formulation because I think we were all surprised by that. But when you describe what it is about singing and about breathing well, that can actually make a person well and help say Andy, that's, that is one side of, you know, another, the other side of that would be, you, you know, it's the same way that you could expel a lot of, of, of sort of breath into the air. And, um, and this was, was seen as, as a real danger and thus, you know, people couldn't sing, you know, lots of people sing, for example, in church, not well, but loud and lustily. And um, that was kind of cut off for people. Um, and, you know, the Claremont Chorale, who I'm a big fan of, because I have lots of friends who sing in it, um, they're, you know, they lost both what, what Andy was calling the social connection, which I think has just broken their hearts, but is also, you know, mm -hmm. all of their, their concerts were canceled and your students mm -hmm. are having the same, the same thing happen. And so I, I like that we might knit this, this broken world back up a little bit with better, with better breathing and thinking about singing again. Well, you know, I, I'm always a big fan of, um, making an argument, strong argument for the relevance of the performing arts, of course. And, you know, I, as I was thinking to myself about this podcast, it occurred to me that, um, you know, science rarely has to make that argument. Um, but I'm, you know, part of my job is always to make that argument. Um, and I will say that um, my students uh, were very communicative with me in the first months of COVID in their um, appreciation for retaining lessons and retaining performance classes and retaining student recitals. And that those student recitals, which incidentally, um, I think our first student recital is coming up this Tuesday, 6.30. Um, and those student recitals um, in which the students present pre-recorded performances, video performances of the music that they're, that they're um, studying, um, but introduced live by the student themselves. Um, so there is a live component, but then the, um, the technical restrictions um, made it, I think, advisable for us to do pre-recorded uh, performances, those, those moments were really, really important for the students and, um, and also opened up the performances to a whole new group of people. And those are the supporters and the families and the friends of the students. Um. And so it's very common 
for me to see in the kind of in the Zoom room the last name uh, of many of the students, but not the first name. <laughs> like the, the you know the students are there, but then you know grandmothers and grandfathers and um, and and actually you know turning as the saying goes, turning a scar into a star, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you know turning the bug into a feature and. In one case, um, it, last semester, uh, I had applied for a course development grant to be able to uh, run a new project with my students that took advantage of whatever I could take advantage of, which which turned out to be the availability of um, composers to write uh, new pieces for my students um, to text that the students themselves composed about COVID and about their experience with COVID. So, and these, these composers were for the most part, because that's the composers that I often work with were, were in Asia. Um, so I had one composer from China, one composer, uh, from Malaysia, one composer from, um, Cambodia, who also now is going to Oxford uh, <laughs> for composition study. Um, and and those students and composers worked together over the first couple of months um, to create these new works. And, you know, in many cases, the students um, took advantage of that moment to kind of honor their grandparents um, and and then invited their grandparents to to the to the recorded performance, um, and I think that was incredibly meaningful for them, and it was certainly meaningful for me. Thinking that, you know, we we could because these composers were stuck at home and had time on their hands, we could ask for something that we couldn't ask for before, um, and and so having that connection with a, a composer on the other side of the world, and then having a new work. Um, that was premiered and recorded by the student that that spoke about the importance of the the people that they could not see, um, but was sort of the, this virtual um, virtual hug for for their family elders. That was so moving. It seems it's, a, it's as if, in one sense, we've lost a little of our brittleness and become a bit more tender. Um, that this may be one of the things we take away from these times. May I ask you a slightly different question, but I think it's related. Um, and that is, goes back to a remark that you made at the beginning of our conversation. Um, why do you think that religious practice and the breath is so, are often so, um, so well entwined? Um, well, I th- I think many people when they think of religious practice are are these days thinking of exoteric practice and by that I mean um kind of the parts of the ritual that are um you know public and um the works of charity or uh you know works that are written down uh, or buildings you know like mm-hmm. um but uh but the 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 kind of kernel at the kernel of every religion is uh, usually um, a, a, a person or a group of people who have had what is known as a kind of mystical experience. And that, you know, that's up for, for uh, of course, f- for people to define. But um, it's, you know, kind of self-consciously 
noetic is what I think the word is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and so those experiences are often accompanied by, um, by different experiences of the body, including breathing. And um, breathing then also as, as those first practitioners want to kind of maintain a connection to that experience and also teach it to people later on, um, breathing becomes one of the teachable skills. Um, however, at the same time, and this is also something um, that I hope people take seriously, um, the breathing practices um, can go awry very, very easily. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you go to a, you know, a class, a yoga class, um, you are not really doing very much breathing technique, usually, um, of, of an advanced nature. And the pranayama, which is a kind of advanced breathing techniques, that stuff is only really taught to people who have, um, a teacher with them because things can go wrong very quickly. And, um, and then, you know, bad things can happen. Um, and so I guess, um, teaching the breathing, it's, it's a very powerful thing, but most people don't ever, um, they don't ever get into trouble with it. And they, they also don't use it. Um, and I, I guess most of the traditions that I've come across in my research at some point, the esoteric traditions, which are secret and are often secret for, for this reason that I just mentioned, those almost always involve some branch of, of breathing practice. Um, so that's the connection between religion and breathing. And then I guess the connection between, um, religion and music is sort of related in that, um, those, those mystical experiences tend to, uh, be in a in a kind of consciousness that defies language, so it's very rare for somebody to be incredibly um, voluble <laughs> in that mystical state. Like it, it, people talk about it as this state of oneness, um, and so language isn't necessary. You're being; you don't need to communicate anything. You already are, you know, kind of filled up with being, um, and so um, what comes out is sound. And no, there's there's um, this. Um... There's, a, there's a, one of my favorite neuroscientists is a man named Yak Pangsep who had posited this theory and based on the, the development of, of language and of music is that neurologically you actually require music to develop language. You sing lullabies before mm. you're able to, to speak. And, and so the relationship between them is that language wouldn't exist if we didn't have song. And so it's, it's, mm. it's not just defies language, it's foundational for language, according to this biological oh. approach, which I think is a way that I, I like that, that resonates with me. But it, it makes mm-hmm. me think about this foundational importance of music rather than it being, you know, as you said sometimes earlier, like you have to be able to argue for the, the necessity of, of arts and performing arts. Um, but that's because people are, are not acknowledging the primacy of the performing arts. Like this is core to being human rather than it being something that's uh, a, a feather in the cap of being human. And, and I think that that can make this connection in all of these other ways that you're talking about that I don't, you know, the way we're untaught to sing essentially. Um, as we get older, 
because we view that as shedding something that's that's not very uh, not, not very kind for other people to hear us screaming or to belt or whatever it is. If my neighbor, when I'm when I'm singing total eclipse of the heart, um, but when you actually that's not what you sing, is it? No, I was I was actually <laughs> I was actually saying I need a hero this morning. That's a good phone. The other one is yeah. not a good phone. No, but <laughs> I was, I didn't want to admit to you that I had actually gone there, but no, I, you know, it's the morning. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, like, there, I, I think that uh, what you were talking about, Anne and, and Laurie-Anne, is that we have a system here that is woefully neglected um, because it's tied so closely with our very existence. And so therefore, it's, a, it's going to find its way into all components, all, all facets of our lives. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that you're describing is how we can regain our lives, our social lives, our psychological lives, our physical lives, when we kind of re-embrace this thing that's really primal to us. I think that that, well, I would have I only add that, you know, that we have lost it too in our, in some of our studies. In other words, I'm not sure why I can say that I understand Shakespearean um, England if I don't understand the music that care, you know, the, the music of Shakespearean England, by which I don't mean, you know, memorizing madrigals, but just the idea of a culture that is musical. Hmm. I think, I, you know, I think we are musical in a way. I think people listen to a tremendous amount of recorded music. Um, I think it's, it's less common for people to actually be able to make music themselves, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I certainly look forward to the moment, if it ever arrives, in which concerts, live concerts can happen again, because I think that students, everybody, and students in particular, um, who used to see going to concerts as this sort of onerous duty, are going to enter the concert hall with a feeling of reverence and gratitude and appropriate awe for the moment of performance of their colleagues and, and the faculty, um, because, um, because they haven't had it for so long. And now they know what they're missing, you know? Now they know why Netflix isn't the end all and be all. <laughs> it only takes you, know, you so it's far. Funny. You remind you you remind me there's this great line in the novel that everyone's made to read in junior high, at least when I was growing up, to kill a mockingbird, where she thinks that she's not gonna be allowed to read. And she goes, she says something, I was I never thought that I'd that I'd be reading would be taken away from me. One does not love breathing. And what she meant by that was it was so natural that she hadn't thought about it in a way. She hadn't thought about it as a, as a value, something that she valued. She just thought she did it. And um, you, you're talking in some ways about the same thing and, you know, approaching with reverence and perhaps approaching with, an, an, a, with the kind of understanding that comes from doing some of it oneself. You, you, what you said about doing a little singing, doing some singing in order to actually have that part of you light up that you would appreciate um, music in a different way. I hope that happens too. I think we've been made shy about singing. We're, we, we, we feel like if our voices aren't, ex, you know, quote unquote good, um, which is what I would say about mine, I can't sing is what I would say, which at one level oh my is, God. is silly, right? I knew you'd say that um, because of course I'm singing all the time. I'm just never singing when I would let anyone else hear me. Um, 
And that's the difference. Well, you know, that's a whole other podcast unto itself. I have like so many experiences with, um, with students and, and people who, you know, come into the studio and say that, oh, I can't sing. And of course, the very fact that they are coming to the lesson, you know, have auditioned, which is, you know, already kind of a, a barrier for many people, oh, right? Yeah. The very fact that they have pursued this thing, they, they feel, they know they're missing it. They know there's something there that, that, that that's like a hole that they that they 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 want to explore that they they want to fill up and they they know that the, they they are lacking and um though the transformation of of those students not just vocally but psychologically and dare i say you know like even like spiritually or you know as mm-hmm. human beings right um, mainly is one of the most moving experiences that i have as a teacher uh, I, I'm watching those people just risk and take these steps into themselves using voice study as a as a lever to cr- pry open that door to psyche, and then the changes that it 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 makes in their quality of life for the rest of their lives, and 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 the effect that it has on their public speaking, or their just their ability to breathe with another person or in a group, like all these all these changes come cascading forth just because they've started to investigate this this sort of singing art, oh. um, and for for me that's that's why I'm a teacher because I feel such a, um, you know, inspired, uh, such a, um, you know, thankfulness to be able to kind of shepherd people through and to find themselves. You know, you're making me wish that I was sick so you could come and teach me how to breathe. Um, <laughs> you know, you know I, I feel like Marianne, you, you know that the people I teach are 22. Like I, I also have a, a student, a private student who's over 60. Um, now, what makes so you think that it, would be a piece of information that I would be interested in? <laughs> because, you, because you said, um, I wish I were eight years old. Yes. Um, and I, I, I think that that's a very common feeling when people come to studying the voice that my time, I've missed it. <clears throat> you know, I've, I've like that time was passed. I'm not that open person anymore and I cannot go back and, and find it. And that's just simply not true. And, you know, this is like, you have to have, um, and I'm sure you guys both do a uh, radical growth mindset. So you know, people who believe in the inborn capacity of some to, that excludes people from singing. I mean, if you can talk, and we know everybody here can talk, mm-hmm. you can sing. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really the extension of the vowel in time. Um, and then, you know, adhering to certain social constraints, of course, right? So (laughs) there are some rules you have to follow too. And Um, my neighbor is going to hate you because I'm going to feel even more empowered to belt during dishes in the morning. Well, I know I'm, I'm a terrible person to, to travel with because, um, because I like to hum along on the airplane and I also, uh, hum along with what? (laughs) Hum along with the, with the sound of the engines? 
Yeah, with the engines. And um and and I also have like an incredible um ability to hear people scream like children screaming. And I don't, you know, I, I sort of encourage them like as as a sort of <laughs> professional <laughs> This is not a good yeah. relationship to Andy's neighbor at all. If it, when when we are allowed to visit each other again, and you guys are together in Andy's apartment, washing dishes and singing together, I'm mm-hmm. going to watch the police blotter. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Lorianne, you asked about what is an expert breather. I'm just going to leave you with this um, th- thing that I found completely astonishing. So, you know, there's there's breathing and there's also holding the breath right and right. sort of everything in between and I w- over the summer i was doing some some extracurricular reading on breathing um as you know we have time in the summer as one does <laughs> as one does and um i found a book um about um i think it was the, the guy called it um like what was it? Numo. Uh, anyway, he he like basically uh, compared these certain people that he he was studying um, to kind of astronauts, and the like they go to the very extreme of of what's possible with the breath. Mm-hmm. And um, in one case, he's he was studying um, deep dives done without a tank. Um, and I just want to ask you, both of you, how long do you think a human being can hold their breath and, you know, return to the surface or return, return to breathing and, you know, not have like a a terrible impact, like not be brain dead or, you know, like just like these guys regularly hold their breath for long periods of time. How long do you think we're talking? What they do, which is extraordinary. Um, eight minutes i would guess less i would guess like five ish okay so yeah that's what i guessed but it's over 20 minutes what yeah it's over 20 minutes go ahead google it like (laughs) there's there's a guy who who's done it i think 26 minutes is the latest record for heaven's sake that's amazing and a lot of it it's amazing. And, uh, you know, some of it has to do with the, um, the cold water on the face reflex yep. Yep. that, um, that lowers your heartbeat, mm-hmm. uh, and, and metabolism in general, um, which a lot of people don't know about, but there it is. That's why people, when you have a panic attack, they throw a glass of water in your face, I guess. Um, God. and yeah, I just thought no, it, it, people were being annoying. Um, there, there are these YouTube videos that go on for 26 minutes that are just the still shot of this guy with his face in water because <laughs> that's the only way you can tell awesome. that it hasn't been doctored, right? Um, and, you know, people are watching him live as well. Anyway, I just thought that, like that to me was so humbling that, you know, and there are pearl pearl divers um who are doing that kind of, that kind of, um, very, Mm. very, um, I don't know if Olympic is the right word, but, um, you know, extreme breathing practices in order to survive. And ply their trade and and do their work. Um, 
Well, that truly mm-hmm. is in a way um, ending with, as we began, the voice of the pearl. Um, oh, there it is. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I, I was going to have some pun about not holding your breath, but yours was way better, Lorianne. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah. I'm still, I still want to you know that I'm still thinking about you singing Bonnie Tyler, but we'll, we'll, well get back to that. Next time, um, next time we're going to start this with a mu- musical selection. Yeah, and, right. and I I encourage you, Lorianne, if you're interested, and of course Andy knows this as well. Um, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm absolutely willing to entertain, uh, you know, voice voice lessons for people for the, of all for the all professorial yeah. professorial and administrative <laughs> ranks. I would like that very much. Actually, you you're you're making me think that um, it may not be tap dancing. I want to take up in my next um, iteration but singing because um, because somebody has to be there to sing with Andy when he's in, in jail because his neighbors thrown him into jail for being too noisy. Um, <laughs> and I feel like we've kept you forever and we could keep on talking forever, but um, thank yeah, you so we'll much. We'll just have to do it again. We will. We can, we can, Cause I think there's whole, there's yeah. all kinds of things we haven't gotten to explore, but we did get to get below the surface a bit here. And, and thank you so much. And also, yes. Wonderful, wonderful about your students and what you're doing with them. Uh, giving back in that way is extraordinary. And um, and well, we'll see if <clears throat> I mean, if you can put up my email with this podcast, then people will be able to get in touch with me, presumably. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, like it, uh, it was difficult to figure out how to insert ourselves into the COVID healing process. Well, it sounds like you found out how. No, I mean like. In terms of institutional hookup. Oh, well, this is America. Who, who, where are we going to find all the COVID patients? That's That was my, mm-hmm. right? The people who need us. How are we going to find those people? How are those people going to know that they can, they can, um, they can take advantage of our, our, you know, I don't know, service is the right word, but uh, our, our expertise and. Um, and your generosity. You know, I don't know generosity. Like I, every time people do these sorts of outreach things, um, I feel like they learn a tremendous amount. And, you know, I, I remember one time, um, and this probably is for the next podcast, but um, I, I was a penniless opera singer kind of living hand to mouth. And I, I wanted to donate something for a silent auction. So I donated like a, an, an aria, right? Like oh. you, you just, you know, you bid on this aria <clears throat> and I'll come and I'll do it somewhere like wedding or a funeral or whatever. And, um, and this person bid on me and said, okay, like, here it is. We've got this baptism happening. It's out way the heck out in Boston. Oh my gosh, it was so far away. So I got to the church and, you know, the, they were starting the the service. I went up to the organ, you know, where the organist was working and it was like, okay, they want Ave Maria. Okay, fine. No problem. So, you know, everybody, every soprano worth their salt knows Ave Maria. There's a couple kinds. I know them both. Um, and so, you know, when the appointed moment came for the, the, the baptism, the, you know, the water on the head of the infant to happen, he started in on the uh, Ave Maria and I started singing. And there came this weird groaning, like a couple of octaves below where I was singing to the point where I was like, what am I doing? Like, th- there's somebody like who's, who's sabotaging this. This is so 
you know, sad for the parents who have paid for this thing for us. You know, like, right. And, uh, and we just kept on going, kept on going. I was like, okay, homeless people in the church, you know, try to feel charitable. Like, <laughs> like, like I just, um, and afterwards I went up to the parents and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry that, that the, that aria didn't come out the way it was supposed to because of that person who was singing, but you know, hopefully it was good. And they were like, Oh no, 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 no. You don't understand. That was my father who has been uh, unable to speak to us or communicate to us for two years. And when he heard Ave Maria, he started singing along. And that's the first time we've heard from him in two years. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, oh my god my. <laughs> well i don't right think- and it was for the baptism and like oh my gosh so you know it was really like this orphic moment where orpheus like through the power of music goes in and like resurrects this 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 like communication or like this this part of the being of 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 their family member and he emerges just only while music is there. Right. And then, and then goes back into his body and, um, but they know that something is still alive there. You know, that's that they were, they, they were in tears actually. I think I'm just about to be. Yeah. I, I love that story to kind of sign us off, um, for, for the, for this week in this episode, but, and to, to echo Laurieanne, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. As you can tell, I'm just, popcorn i just love to talk <laughs> well, well we'll we'll give you a we'll give you more than another chance because uh this is okay, a lot great. of fun but thank you so much for ending on such a we don't need poetry at the end of this of, of this episode andy that was poetic um, i agree in it's beauty absolutely so thank you thank you and i'll see i'll talk to you andy next time yep thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of sharing air